Okay, let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be concluding the chapter, going through verses 31 and 39. Um, So Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, um, I was thinking this week a lot uh, about warranties. I don't know if you've been looking at warranties recently, but I've had a lot of things break down uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, Had a battery just die this past uh, Monday. Um, And uh, I've had other items that I've had for a while that suddenly over time wear down and they break down. And so I've been looking at it and I've realized more and more that you really need to know um, how long something's going to last, how long it's good for. and it's important to know how much security you have in your warranty. Um, some items, I've found, have a lifetime warranty. Um, they say on their products, you know, you know, as long as you live, it's good. And you think, oh, wow, that's great. Like, I, I am just in such good luck. No matter what I do to this thing, I'm going to be fine. But then you realize that you have to actually read the fine print because um, when you have this certain sense of security, knowing that you've invested in it, you think, oh, I'm good. But with the fine print, often, and I've looked at the most common things as to why a lifetime warranty is voided. And um, they don't tell you, though, that most of these products, if it's lost or stolen, it's not covered. Or they don't cover pro- improper use or neglect by an owner. And so if you, you know, are just negligent with it, you don't get a, a lifetime warranty on it. Or if you decide that I don't like it exactly in the state it's in, I'm going to modify it a little bit, I'm going to tweak it to make it better, You've changed the product, and it's no longer under warranty. Or worse, you may have lived your entire life following everything you could possibly do uh, to keep that warranty intact, but the company goes out of business, and it goes bankrupt. And that company goes out of, uh, out of business, your warranty is no longer supported by that company because it's no longer around. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, all this to say is that sometimes um, in life, there is an asterisk next to the security you have. Um, you know, there's even asterisks next to the security you can have with a bank. They say, we'll secure your money up until a quarter million dollars. But after that, you know, you're on your own. Or the stock market, they say, you know, we'll secure it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll promise you that this is the expected trend, but we can't guarantee you that you're going to get your money back. Um, sometimes, you know, even with um, insurances, they say, you know, this is our insurance policy, but you know, if you get into you know, an accident greater than that, then we're not going to cover that. Um, and so all that to say is that there is really um, <clears throat> no security that you can find on this earth that is 100% guaranteed. There's always an asterisk next to the security you have, whether it be an item or home security or the stock markets. Um, there is really no security out there on, on earth that can be offered. And that's, that's honestly just the reality of how the world goes. But what about something far more important than a material possession? What about something far more important than, you know, an item? What's the guarantee for something like your salvation? What's the security for that? What is, is there a guarantee out there for believers who have placed their trust in Christ, who have really entrusted their eternal soul in his care? Is there, is, is there a security for them? Is salvation that has something is, is salvation something that has an asterisk next to it, that a believer can lose their salvation based on something they've done or something they've said, uh, or something that happens to them, and is there a limit on God's love towards them? 
This is the subject of Paul's conclusion to chapter 8. He's talking about the security that a believer has in their salvation. And we just sang the song, The Solid Rock, that there is a sense of security that we have as Christ, as believers in Christ. Uh, just to kind of go back to look over the first eight chapters, Paul has been outlining, first of all, man's sinfulness in the beginning chapters of this book. He then outlines the salvation that God has provided in order to remedy this, the sin problem that man has. And then he talks about the hope that Christians now have that they are saved and in Christ. And chapter 8, Paul begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a promise that believers have that those who have placed their faith in Christ cannot and will not be condemned for the sins they have committed against God. And then he goes on in this chapter to talk about the roles that a, uh, the Holy Spirit plays in sanctifying a believer and setting them apart. And then he talked last week about the future hope that a believer has, that they will be glorified. And um, the passage ends by saying that God is sovereign in his plan of salvation and that those he called, he knew beforehand. Those he called, he also declared righteous. And those he declared righteous, he also glorified, as we read last week. And the Lord is just again and again trying to convey the idea that you are eternally secure if you are a believer. Your salvation is eternally secure. You are 100% secure. There is no one who will slip through the cracks. There is no one who will lose their salvation or the assurance of their salvation. That's a guarantee for every single person who is predestined by God. They will also be called, justified, and glorified. God has promised that, and it will come to pass. And yet, as I've gone through my life as a Christian, um, if you have not already seen this, you will one day, sadly, there will be objectors to this teaching. There will be those who do not fully accept the truths uh, that your salvation is forever. And on the opposite spectrum, there are those who just simply are unsure of the security of their salvation. There are those who live their lives believing that salvation is a transient thing, that one day you can have it and the next day you can lose it, depending on what you do or say. They believe that your salvation is not forever and that you can lose it. And they go on their lives living in fear from what might happen from day to day. Fearing that salvation could be snatched away from them in, an, in a moment, in a single action. And all of that stress, all that anxiety could be resolved in their minds <clears throat> if they had a proper understanding of today's passage. You see, Paul wants us to rejoice. He wants us to rejoice in the fact that our salvation is secure. This final nine verses is really a, a hymn of praise, a hymn of rejoicing that God has, has us eternally secure in him, that our salvation does not waver. He wants us to be certain that when we die, that we know that we will go to heaven, that it's not just something that I hope for in this sense of, you know, one day mystically down the road, I'm hoping that my good outweighs my bad and, you know, nothing like that. No, this is a guarantee. That is not anything that you've done but it's all of what Christ has done for you and that because of what he has done for you and trusting in that alone, we know for certain that we will be with him. And we're certain, again, because it's the one whom we place our faith in, and that is Jesus Christ. And now the idea, um, now the passage, uh, like I said, deals with these objections, these questions, these doubts that people might bring up about eternal security. 
And um, again, I guarantee you at some place, sometime, somewhere, you will meet someone who holds this idea that salvation can be lost. In the passage today, if you were to outline it, it has two main questions that it answers. In verses 31 through 34, it answers the question, is there any person who could condemn a believer that would result in them losing their salvation? In verses 35 through 39, it answers the question, is there anything or any circumstance that could separate me from God's love towards me? Let's read our passage in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first question that Paul addresses here is, that is, any, is, is any person, um, is there any person out there who can condemn us or go against a believer that would result in them forfeiting their salvation? He says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, And in considering what God has done for us, in looking at our lowly estate, in looking at, you know, if he was willing to provide a way of salvation for us, um, then the obvious statement is, um, if God is for us, who who can possibly against us? If God was willing to die for our sins and provide that salvation when we were lost, then if God is for us in doing that, then who could possibly be against us? We have the omnipotent God who created the universe on our side. And if he's on our side, then what lesser power could ever be against us and prevail? What, what lesser opponent could ever thwart God's plans for us? It's been said that a person with God on their side makes an unconquerable majority. And Really, because of that, we have no need to worry about what opponent may come our way or whether through some persecution or through other form we may go through in our lives because we know that God is in our corner. We cannot lose, and no power in heaven and no power on earth could ever change or alter his program for our lives. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not... How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And I think we just have to, we say that verse probably many times. Like we've we've used that verse in breaking of bread. We've used that verse, you know, just even giving the gospel out to people. But I think oftentimes the weight of that verse is forgotten or it's maybe not realized. Um, But at one point in your life, you were an enemy of God. You were lost in your sinful ways. You were estranged from him. 
You were as far away as you could possibly be from him. And when mankind needed a solution most to their sin problem, God, in his mercy, provided that solution with his own son. And we talked about today how God gave the best gift possible. God gave the ultimate gift. God did not hold back from giving the ultimate gift for us. He offered his own son, his only begotten son, as the ultimate gift for us. He gave him over, rather than holding on to him, he gave him over to die on a cross, to be bruised, to be pierced for our iniquities, for our transgressions. God gave the very best gift possible. And so the idea is one of, um, of an, an argument of the greater to the lesser. And the idea being that if we were still God's enemies and he gave us the greatest gift possible, then now that we are his children, will he not provide the lesser gifts that follow? He's, if he's already paid the highest price possible for our souls, will he ever let us go? If he has given us a way of salvation, what is it to him to also give us all the eternal blessings that come along with our salvation? That, to me, it's an amazing promise and a security that we have when we are trusting in the Lord, that we have this promise, this security in him, that he will never leave us, never forsake us, that he will deliver us um, to that day where we finally come to be with him. Verse 33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And someone might think to themselves, well, what about if someone else brought a charge against me? Maybe, maybe God wouldn't do anything, but maybe, what if someone else were to bring a charge? You know, uh, what if Satan were to, were to come before God and bring a charge and that charge would be brought before him and God were to look at that charge and God revoke my salvation? Or what if I commit some sin and I disobey God in a way? Uh, is it possible that God would ever change his mind? Would he ever take it away? Can I be charged with a sin that I commit? Um, when, you know, is there something that my salvation didn't cover? Is there something that's not part of the quote-unquote warranty of it? Um, can someone come before God like Satan did with Job? And can he accuse him of something? I mean, after all, in Revelation 12, Satan is, is known as the accuser of our brethren who uh, brings accusations before God day and night. Surely with Satan spending so much time accusing us before God, it's, it's, is it possible that one of those accusations might stick and God would change his mind? Or if not Satan, could anyone go before God and say, hey, wait a minute, look at what David just did yesterday. Look what he did two years ago. Look what he did a decade ago. This guy ought to be condemned. He ought to be charged for those crimes. Are any of these scenarios possible? Is it possible for someone or anyone to bring a charge against us even after we're saved? Which really begs the question, how secure is our salvation? And what Paul is doing in answering this question is he's bringing us back to this courtroom scene. He says, now that we are children of God, those whom God loves so much that he gave his own son for, we're now in the courtroom and essentially, there is a call going out through the courtroom, and he's saying, is there anyone who would like to bring a charge against us? Is there anyone who would like to say something now to bring a charge against this person? And um, as minutes go into hours, hours go into days, no one ever comes forward. There's silence. Because no one is able to legitimately come forward and bring a charge against God's elect. So then who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. 
And it's because God, it is God who justifies. In God's courtroom, he, it's the highest court possible, higher than the Supreme Court, higher than any other courtroom, courtroom you'll ever enter into. He is in the highest court, and he is the ultimate judge. He is the highest judge in the universe. And if the highest judge in the universe has declared you righteous, if he has justified you, if he has said that you are not guilty, then what higher power, or what lesser power, really, could ever say otherwise? What lesser power could ever overturn it? And that's, that's the point. No one can. No one could ever overturn it. No one could ever condemn you. That is such a secure feeling to have, to know that God will not change his mind. God has declared you righteous. There will be no retrial. And that even if we sin against him, even if we fail in our Christian walk, we will not lose our salvation. That all of our sins committed both present, past, and future have all been placed upon Jesus. And they have been paid for in full when he died on that cross for us. Paul then again Ask this question again in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And it's, it's almost at this point that someone might be still out there skeptical. Someone might be saying, well, surely there has to be someone who could bring a charge. Surely there has to be some way a person could have their salvation revoked. And so Paul again brings another call. Is there anyone else out there who will condemn them? Is there anyone else who will condemn this person? And again, the answer is that no one will condemn us. Rather, we discover in this verse that not only do we have no one condemning us, but we have an advocate on our side. We have someone who is praying to the Father on our behalf, interceding for us. When we sin, when we fail to live up to the righteous position that God has placed us in, that he sees us in, when we fail to live up to that, it says that Jesus Christ makes intercession for us. That Jesus Christ did not, it, it's amazing, Jesus Christ did not just die for us. Although if he had just stopped there, that would be more than enough. But what he, what he does more than that, <clears throat> he continues to have an active, invested role in our lives, interceding for us on our behalf before God. And if Christ died for us, and if he does not condemn us, but rather prays for us, then who else is left to bring a legitimate charge or a reason for condemning us? And the, again, the answer is no one. And as it said in the very first verse of this chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the first question that's being answered. Is there anyone who can bring a charge against us? Is there any possible way we could lose our salvation? And the answer is, is a resounding no. The second question that's being answered in this passage is a question of, is there anything or any circumstance that could ever separate me or you from the love that God has towards us? Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Um, <clears throat> one of the first... Before we get into the verse, one of the first songs I ever learned um, in Sunday school, maybe even uh, before Sunday school, uh, at home, was the song, Jesus Loves Me. And um, I'm sure you know it well. I'm sure you sang it to your own kids, too. Um, but the, the, the song is very simple, but it says, 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And as a kid, I, you know, you understand only so much. You know, you understand it's a catchy tune and there's hand motions to it. And, you know, it, it's kind of a fun thing to, to remind ourselves of. Um, but as I'm older and I look uh, back on those years and those words, even though it's such a simple song, there was profound meaning in that. I mean, there's probably, that song has some probably the most life-changing words in there. As simple as it is, the fact that Jesus loves me. The fact that Jesus cares for me. That even though I'm a weak person, Jesus is strong and he's on my side. And he loves me. And um, it's just, when I think about it, I think about the fact that God is perfect. He is sinless. He is all-knowing. He knows all my faults. He knows all my wrongs. He knows what I'll say tomorrow. He knows what I'll do 10 years from now. He knows everything. And he knows all the things I've thought about, all the things I thought about doing, all the things I said in private that I thought was said in private, but it wasn't because he saw it and he heard it. All those things, all my faults, all my flaws, all my failures are evident before him. He knows everything, and yet that same God loves me. He loves me individually, and he loves you, and he knows everything about you, and yet he still loves you. That's profound to know that. It's amazing to know that I have a God that loves me that way. And he didn't just say, David, I love you. David, I really am fond of you. David, I really, you mean a lot to me. <clears throat> he went so much further than that, and he proved it with his actions. He left heaven all the glories associated with it, and he became a man. And he was despised, and he was rejected by the very ones he came to save. And he endured torment, and he was nailed to a cross for me and for you, for my sins. What an amazing Savior we have. And in, indeed, as I look at these things and I think about these things, I realize Jesus does indeed love me. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us before we even saw the need for him. He loved us when we didn't even know we were lost. While we were still his enemies, God loved us. And I think that's something that as we go through our lives and as we go through eternity, we'll never exhaust of thinking about God's love for us. And so in realizing that Jesus loves me, in realizing that he loves you, is there anything that could ever separate us from his love towards us? People have asked before, will there be any circumstance that will ever cause him to stop loving you or me? They think, surely some, someday something will come along and God will just stop loving me. And so Paul, in an effort to answer this question, in an effort to remind believers of just how secure God's love is for you, he goes through a list of probably the most difficult and stressful and trying things a person could ever go through in their lives. And he examines each one, one by one, to see if any of these things could ever separate us from God's love for us. And Paul says, he starts off, first of all, with, with tribulation. How about the great sufferings that a believer goes through in their lifetime? Will the, the squeezing pressures that come from trials 
and hardships, will that ever separate us from God's love? Or, or how about distress? Will the anguish that you feel within yourself during those trials, the troubles you face within yourself as you're going through those difficulties, is that ever enough to separate you from God's love? Or what about persecution? What about, if, what if I'm rejected by everyone in my life? What if everyone turns their back on me because I'm a follower of Christ? Or what if I lose my job because I stand up for what I believe is right for Christ's sake? Or what if I speak about Christ, and I'm imprisoned, and I'm sentenced to life in jail? Or what if I'm even killed? Or what if I go through famine, and I have little to no food, and my stomach is nearly empty? Or what if I'm so poor, I can't even afford to buy clothes on my back, and I live in nakedness? What will the evidence be that God still loves me? Will God's love still be there for me? Or what if I go through perilous times where my life is in great danger and there are people who want my head off? There are people who are plotting against me. And what if there's someone who actually does kill me, whether by the sword or some other weapon? What then? Does God still love me? Can any of these things separate me from God's love towards me? He doesn't answer the question right away. He, he continues on by... Um, Going to verse 36, where he says, As it is written for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And what Paul is saying here is that tribulations, trials, persecutions, and even death are all part of the Christian life as a believer. We mentioned last week that Paul, he knew a thing or two about persecution. He knew a thing about suffering for Christ's sake. Just as a quick reminder, we won't read the whole verse, but he was beaten with rods he was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He was in constant perils everywhere he went. He had countless sleepless nights. He was thrown into prison very often. He uh, spent many days without water, without food. He was left in the streets cold and naked. And throughout his life, he was constantly experiencing near-death uh, moments where people were plotting his own death. And this, this was just the life of Paul. These are the things he suffered and endured for Christ's sake. And if you're a believer who stands up for Christ, if you're a believer who uh, tells other people of the good news of how they can have a relationship with Christ, then these are all things that you may endure. Because in a, to a lost world, to a world that has no concept of, of God, hearing that they are a sinner, hearing that they are not good enough to get to heaven, it's repulsive. It's hurtful to hear. It's not something that's welcomed. And so in light of that repulsiveness in their mind, they naturally want to eliminate the message or the messenger who's telling them of these things. They don't want to hear it. And so life will be filled with difficulties because of the persecution you'll face from speaking up for Christ. But will these things separate us from the love of God? And the answer is a resounding no. He continues by answering that question in verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Rather than the tribulations and the persecution separating us from the love of Christ, these things actually bring us closer to him. <clears throat> these things will never cause God to stop letting, these things will never cause God to let us go or to stop loving us. Even if we were, worst case scenario, even if we were to be killed as martyrs for our faith, Paul says to die is gain. 
It is gain in the sense that if I die today for my faith, I am brought out of a world of sin, I am brought out of a world of sorrow, and right into the presence of the very Savior who died for me, the one who loves me so much. And I get to be there for all eternity, worshiping him, praising him. That's far better. So even in the worst case scenario, even if I were to be in the worst situation and I die, I am still brought closer to Christ. And in, in turn, that doesn't separate me from God's love. It actually brings me closer to him. Um, so truly, nothing that the world can do will ever separate us from the love of God. And in knowing that, it makes us more than just conquerors, because a conqueror, they typically only rejoice after a battle is won. You know, after they've won the victory, they celebrate, they rejoice because they know it's over. But it says as believers, we are more than conquerors. Believers know that they have the Lord on their side. They have the Lord guiding them. They have the Lord directing their steps. And so we don't just rejoice when the victory is won, but we can rejoice in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our persecution, because we know in the end the Lord will deliver us, whether it be in this life or off to the next life with him, forever in heaven. And um, we trust in God for that victory. And when we trust in him, we demonstrate faith. We demonstrate faith and that brings him glory. And in turn, the other believers who are watching, it gives them encouragement. And as a result, we grow in our spiritual walk to learn to trust him more and more as the trials go on. And so we are more than conquerors because we know that God is for us and that he is going to be our help. And so through him, through him, we are more than conquerors. The Bible also says it's through him who loved us. <clears throat> you may be um, today going through some very difficult trials. You may be going through some form of persecution. You may feel very alone and forsaken. You may begin to have doubts in your mind, and you may wonder and question God's love for you. But remember and take peace in the fact that none of these things will ever separate you from the love that God has towards you. In the midst of difficult trials, in the midst of hardships, God's love remains a constant factor in your life. And only through Christ can you triumph and look out uh, and come through that, that trial, that tribulation. Only through him can he turn sweetness out of bitterness. Only through him can he turn um, blessings out of a heartbreak. It's a, it's a great, great, wonderful thing to think about that even if I go through the, sh- the, shadow of the, va- the, va- the valley of the shadow of death, even as I go through some of my darkest days, he will be my guide. He will be my shepherd. I was reminded as I was looking through this verse just of um, the words that Moses uh, gave to the children of Israel right before he passed on the baton to Joshua. Um, he tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor are afraid of them. For the Lord, for the Lord our, your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And as I look at our lives today, the words continue to ring true. What can the world do to a believer? What could they ever face or go through that would take us away from God's love for us? Nothing. Nothing could ever separate us from God's love for us. From his presence, nowhere could we ever go. Nothing could we ever face that he would not be there with us alongside. 
And really, because of that, we have nothing to fear because he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's such a promise, such a, such a wonderful thing to think about. And so in light of those thoughts, in light of what um, Paul has already said up to this point, he closes the chapter with these final two verses, verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded... that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul doesn't want there to be any doubt in our mind. He wants us to be confident that there isn't anything else out there that could ever separate us from the love of God. And so in an attempt to leave no stone unturned, he scours the entire universe trying to find something, something somewhere out there that could possibly separate us from God's love. And after thinking about it for a period of time, this is Paul's conclusion. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, that is death with all the fears and all the the fear that brings to our minds and our hearts, Yes, even death cannot separate us from God's love. In fact, like I said before, it would bring us closer to be with him in his presence. Neither death nor life, life with all the, you know, the trials, the difficulties that come along with it, the sorrows, the pains, the hurts, all the uncertainties, all the temptations, no one and none of that could ever separate us from God's love. As we go through our lives, the Lord is always near to us, And his love for us will always be there. And so, no state of being, whether it be life or death, could ever separate us from God's love. Well, what about a supernatural power or some earthly ruler? Could that ever change God's love for me? And again, Paul's answer is no. Neither angels nor principalities with their supernatural powers and knowledge, nor powers, whether it be world leaders or rulers of any angelical power, could ever separate us from God's love. So no state of being and no power, whether earthly or supernatural, could ever separate us from God's love. Nor things present, nor things to come. So not anything happening right now, nor anything that will happen in the future, not anything in this generation, nor anything that will happen throughout all of eternity would ever change his love for you. Not now, And not ever can you lose your salvation. Not not now, nor ever, will God change and stop loving you. Not in death, not in life, not because of powers, and not in any period of time will God's love for you change. Nor height, nor depth. And Paul, um, when he says this, nor height, nor depth, it, it reminded me of the words of King David as he pondered the idea of where he could go where the Lord did not love him, or where the Lord was not beside him. And he says in Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. And I think Paul has a similar thought that he goes through the vast dimensions of infinite space. And he says, whether I go to the highest heights of space or I go to the lowest depths of the universe, 
Is it possible that a believer could be less loved by God or they could lose their salvation? Will any of that stuff ever change? And again, the answer is no. There is nowhere a believer can go where God's love for them ceases to exist. There is no place a believer can go where he will not be with you. There is no place you can go that you will lose your salvation. God's love for you is constant. In the highest of heights, and the lowest of depths in the universe, he is there and he still loves you. And just to be sure he didn't miss anything, Paul adds this at the end, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so in this search, he has searched, he has turned every rock, he has turned over every thing he could possibly think of, trying to find something that would separate us from God's love something or someone who could cause us to lose our salvation. And the conclusion is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from God's love. What a relief that is to know. What a sense of peace and confidence we have as believers, knowing that God's love for us continues on forever and ever and ever. Regardless of circumstances, powers, whether it be supernatural or earthly, whether it be trials of life or hardships, Or whether it be death itself, God's love for you will never cease. Praise the Lord for that. This uh, passage is a hymn of praise and rejoicing in the security that we have as believers in knowing that our salvation and our God's love for us is forever. It's eternal. And so that should bring our hearts to thank him, to praise him for providing such a great salvation and for showing us such a great love that never fails. And as we go through our Christian lives, we should live confidently knowing that the Lord, our God, is on our side and he is with us and that nothing can ever separate us from the love that he has towards us. That's for, that's for us as believers. If you're not a believer, if you're here today and you think to yourself, I don't, I don't have a relationship with that God. I don't know him personally. I'll, let me tell you, it's, it's not too late. God is offering you that same secure gift of salvation that we have been talking about today. If you will simply acknowledge you are a sinner in desperate need of that Savior who died for you, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on your behalf to save your soul, if you place your faith on him and him alone for your salvation, you too can experience this this wonderful salvation and the wonderful security that comes along with that salvation and the wonderful love that he's shown us and continues to show us throughout our life. I, I pray that you would choose to believe in him today if you haven't already. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just, <clears throat> we're so grateful and so thankful, Lord, to know that our salvation is secure in you. Lord, that nothing can ever separate us from your love. No one can ever bring a charge against us or condemn us. Lord, we're thankful that, our, um, that we have a God who loves us so greatly. And Lord, I'm thankful that I can say that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And um, Lord, we just, we're so grateful for that. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, there's anyone who hasn't come to a saving knowledge of you and hasn't come to realize that security that they can have in salvation through you, I pray that, Lord, they would trust you, that they would admit that they are a sinner needing you and that they would uh, choose to believe in you today. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.